You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, The Snarlin' Sea Dog, Hangman Strain, John, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Vanderwood, Richard, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Keelhaw Chris, Carcos, Sean, Rotary Coast, M.D., Ghost 750X, Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, The Snarlin' Sea Dog, and Bootstraps Bailey. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Ryan, Richard, Steve, James, Nathan, Daniel and Katie, Andrew, Daniel, Jerry, Austin, Johnson, Harry, Leland, Brennan, Halvor, Keebler, Matthias, Mark, Jess, Curtis, Donald, Mike, James, Lon, Rofe, and Steve. And our newest Commodores, Noah, Seth, DJ Jesus 72, and Infamous Florida Man. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. On 3rd May, 1699, Lord Bellamont, Governor of New York, wrote the Lords of Trade and Plantations a letter that read in part, quote, Hein the Pirate is a bloody villain, has murdered several men, and will give no quarter, they say, to Spaniards that he takes. He belongs to this town, he means New York, his wife and his family now here. He was a master's mate of the fortune, which I seized at my first coming here, which had been also commissioned by Colonel Benjamin Fletcher. End quote. That passage was just a single point in a much longer letter that Lord Bellamont wrote. 
That letter was a part of a campaign against Benjamin Fletcher, tied intimately to the piracies of Henry Every and Captain Kidd, for whom there was currently a worldwide manhunt going on. Captain Hine really wasn't the point. He was just another example of deviousness on the part of Governor Fletcher. But Captain Hine was about to grip the eastern seaboard and parts of the West Indies in real terror. This is episode 319, A Sinister Visage. Shortly after that letter was written, probably before it even arrived in London, Captain Hine left the area around New York and headed south for the West Indies. Captain Hine was a Dutch pirate, and we don't know his first name, but while in the West Indies he captured at least three vessels in the waters around Barbados. He took the ships and their cargo north where he planned to sell them, but on his way Captain Hine, quote, came up with an English-built ship mounted with 22 guns called the Providence Galley, under the command of Captain William Rett of Carolina, who made a very generous defense but was outdone and taken by the said pirate. End quote. This galley was a massive upgrade for a pirate like Captain Hine. The brigantine on which he currently sailed only carried four guns, which he transferred over to the Providence, making her a ship of 26 guns. Everyone knew who Captain Hine was, but news that he had captured a powerful ship spread quickly. And for a moment, Hine the pirate was all the talk of Charleston and Jamestown and Boston and New York. They were all terrified of what a bloody-minded pirate like that would do to them. But first, Captain Hine and the Providence stopped off at Nassau, in the Bahamas. There, they were to resupply and refit their ship. Now, Nassau was already a hive of pirates from all over the world. It was a port known to be friendly to men of that sort. That's why Henry Every stopped there back in 1696. It also meant that Captain Hine was able to recruit a couple of dozen men for his crew. Now that he had a much larger ship, he needed them to actually sail the thing. Once all that was done, and all the ships and cargo had been sold, the Providence and Captain Hine continued on north. But just a couple of days out from Nassau, the crew of Providence mutinied against Captain Hine. The mutiny was led by a man named John James. The sources at the time call him an Englishman and call this an English mutiny, but he wasn't. He was Welsh. However... Most of the men under his command were probably from the British Isles, and his mutiny does seem to have been an English-speaking mutiny against the Dutch and French on board, including Captain Hine. One source I have says that John James was a crewman aboard the Providence before it was taken by Captain Hine, but I don't think that's right. For a couple of reasons, but mainly because the story after that usually reads something like, and then he suddenly and unexpectedly, for no discernible reason, turned to piracy. Which doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you just recaptured the ship. I think it's much more likely that James led a crew of pirates that had fallen on hard times. They were without a ship and staying on Nassau, those men that were recruited by Captain Hine. Naturally, when Hine came calling, they signed up and then immediately turned against him and took his ship. 
Captain James and his English-speaking pirates left Captain Hine and fifteen men on the Berry Islands. That's a crescent-shaped island chain just northwest of New Providence Island in the Bahamas between it and Florida. But John James was really kind of a... You know, he was a proper pirate. Just a, a, a right villainous bastard. And he really looked the part. In Pirates of the Chesapeake, Donald G. Chamet writes, quote, John James was an ugly, imposing man, severely disfigured by smallpox. He was of middle height, square-shouldered, large-jointed, with a blemish on his left eye that gave him a squinty, sinister visage. His speech was broad and thick. His demeanor toward prisoners was calculating and cool. He had a bold ego, as the more successful pirates tended to have. End quote. And I gotta tell you, I like this guy. I mean, he's not an admirable man or a good person, but he's exactly what you want out of a proper pirate. For example, Captain James was an inveterate liar. He's going to lie all throughout this story to nearly every respectable man that he comes across, and I just, I love it. On his way north, Captain James captured a couple of more ships. The first was a brigantine called the Charles, which belonged to a William Sayer. It was headed from Carolina to the Bahamas. James took that ship, marooned the crew, and continued on north. A few days later, he spotted a ship that was heading north from the Bahamas to Carolina. This was the sloop success of Captain William Joel, Joel himself may have been a uh, less-than-scrupulous sailor. Maybe not a pirate exactly, but maybe a smuggler. He was, after all, coming from Nassau. At least, we have to wonder why, when Captain James took the success from Captain Joel, he gave him the Charles as recompense. A pirate like John James wasn't in the habit of giving ships away for no good reason. Of course... In so doing, he would have offered all of the crewmen from the success the opportunity to stay on board their ship and follow him into a life of piracy, and some probably did. And it's here, from an eventual testimony given by Captain Joel, that John James had renamed his ship, probably back when he was elected captain of the Providence, but he began calling it Alexander. The Alexander continued on past Carolina. Likely they were worried about the coastal defenses that a place like Carolina would offer, which weren't exactly significant, but would have given him some trouble. However, he was running low on supplies by this point, so he decided to do a little hunting in the Chesapeake. His first target was a coastal skimmer, a pink, called the Hope. The Hope was carrying virtually no cargo to speak of, certainly nothing of any real value. The captain of the Hope told Captain James that he had no cargo on board, and he was welcome to have a look around and see for himself. Captain James told the man that he didn't really need any plunder, since he already had millions of pounds sterling in the ship's hold. Which, he didn't. That is an obscene amount of money, especially for 1699, and I suspect that the entirety of the Bahamas wouldn't have held that much. 
But Captain James didn't really need money anyway. What he needed was food and water, and those he did get in a small amount from the Hope. However, Captain James's curiosity was piqued by a ship that was carrying no cargo, not even any tobacco or hemp from a place like Virginia. What was she for, if not to carry some cargo? So he decided to have another look around personally and see what he could find. In the captain's personal sea chest, John James came across a leather satchel, a satchel bearing a letter that was most interesting to him. And I love the fact that this hideous ogre of a pirate was somehow able to read. Just perfect pirate. That letter was written from Governor of Virginia Francis Nicholson to the Governor of Carolina, Joseph Blake. Nicholson was writing to inform Blake, and I gotta say, this is just too perfect, but apparently it's all true. He was writing to inform Blake that his current coastal defenses were far too weak to withstand an attack from the terrifying pirate Captain Hine. To Captain James, who had taken his ship from Captain Hine, this was good news. James decided to question the crew, and probably torture them a bit, but he was asking mostly about the defenses of Chesapeake Bay, and he found, according to these prisoners, that they were indeed lacking. Virginia currently only had one ship guarding the entire bay, known as the Essex Prize. The ship was undermanned, carried few guns, and was in poor repair. The Chesapeake was ripe for plunder. I imagine that it was at this very moment, when Captain James learned just how vulnerable Virginia was, that thunder rumbled in the distance. I assume, while Captain James cackled maniacally. And there was actually a great deal of thunder, maybe not quite so cinematic, but... That night, the 24th of July, 1699, the Chesapeake was hit by a horrible storm. The Essex Prize, under Captain John Aldred, was anchored off of Cape Henry, near the town of Kikutan, today part of Hampton, Virginia. Throughout the night, Essex Prize was lashed by the storm. Twice she had her anchor cables snap. Once, the wind shifted so suddenly that they were very nearly blown ashore. But the ship weathered the storm. She was battered, but still floating. Once the weather had passed, Captain Aldred sent a longboat to Kikutan with seven men that were to collect water and supplies, mostly what they needed to repair the ship. A day passed while they waited for the men to return and did what they could to get the ship fit to sail. While they were working, a ship that had just departed Jamestown called the Maryland Merchant passed, Captain Richard Burgess. She was carrying a cargo of tobacco. As the sun began to set on the evening of the 26th, from the crow's nest the lookout spotted unfamiliar sails in the distance. She was a big ship and making right for the Maryland Merchant, so Aldred ordered his men to put the Essex Prize under sail and intercept her. Essex Prize was undermanned, in poor repair, and only had sixteen guns on board, but it was their duty nonetheless to protect the bay. 
As the Essex Prize approached the unfamiliar galley, the stranger raised her standard atop the mast, a blood-red flag. Then the stranger fired off a warning volley, a full complement of twenty-six guns, guns loaded with powder, but no shot. Aldred responded by raising his own flag, the King's Jack, and when he fired, his guns were not lacking cannonballs. Providence responded with a full broadside. It fell a bit short, but the pirate ship clearly outclassed the Essex Prize in every way. Aldred knew that if he were to fight a stand-up battle against this galley, he would lose and probably have his ship sunk or taken from him. So instead he decided to try to lure the pirate away from the Maryland merchant. He fired one last salvo at the pirate, but then he turned away to the south, making it clear that he was running, but also, hopefully, making himself a tempting target. He led the Essex Prize into the shoal waters, the sandy bottoms that his pilot knew well, but the pirate certainly didn't. If he proved greedy, the pirate ship would almost certainly beach herself and be unable to move or further harass the Chesapeake Bay. But Captain James was no fool. He waited just beyond the shoal waters, just out of range of the Essex. Now, at this point, the Maryland merchant might have been able to make for the open water of the Atlantic. She had a clear line of escape, but she was a slow, fat little merchant ship. And the pirate was a lean, fast-looking galley with oars that could make her even faster. So instead of heading for the Atlantic, Captain Burgess decided to try to escape into the James River. Now that route would take her dangerously close to the galley, but if she could make it into the river first, Captain James would be unable to follow. Alexander spotted the Maryland prize trying to make for the mouth of the river and fired a single shot across her bow. The Maryland merchant struck sail. So Captain James had the Maryland merchant on one side, and on the other, the Essex Prize, essentially kind of trapped in the shoal waters. Captain James couldn't follow her, or reach her if he wanted to, but if Aldred tried to leave the shoals, he would be immediately overpowered. For a few hours, they just sort of sat there, waiting for anyone to make a move. And in the end, Essex Prize made the first. She headed deeper into the shoal waters near the coast, heading toward Jamestown. She was retreating. With the coastal defenses out of the way, Captain James hailed the Maryland merchant. He told them that he wasn't interested in their cargo. He didn't need tobacco. He didn't even want to have a look at their silver plate or their bags of coin. All he wanted was to cannibalize their ship. He needed sails, masts, barrels of pitch and tar, tools, timber for repairs, and rope. Now, all of these were supplies that any reputable ship could easily collect in any port, but a pirate ship could not. They needed to take them from captured prizes, and these supplies would keep her sailing for months. Oh, and one more thing. Captain James needed five or six men who knew these waters 
and would be able to pilot his ship. He wasn't going to be stranded outside the shoals ever again. Captain Burgess of the Maryland Merchant was going to do as the pirate asked, but he had a single question to ask. Simply, he wanted to know who was this terrible captain, this fearful pirate with such a sinister visage. Captain John James responded with all the terror in his voice that he could muster, I am Kid. Captain Burgess believed that the infamous Captain Kid, for whom the world was currently searching, had just captured him. He handed over the supplies. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia... Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. We should, at this point, introduce the quartermaster of the Alexander. His name was Thomas Howard. Very little is known about Howard's early life, but the story usually goes something like this. Thomas Howard was the son of a wealthy Bermuda planter. Upon his father's death, he squandered his inheritance on drink and women and gambling. Eventually, he found himself a penniless wanderer in Jamaica. There, he and a few equally unsavory characters stole a longboat and went out pirating. They captured a series of larger and larger prizes until they had command of a frigate of 24 guns. But at some point, they lost their ship. Perhaps they lost it to rival pirates, or maybe French pirate hunters, or... Maybe she just fell into disrepair. Some pirates just did not take care of their ships and they wound up sinking. Whatever the case, his crew spent their days lazing around Nassau, spending what remaining winnings they had on wine and women until an opportunity came along. When that happened, it did so in the form of a Dutch pirate captain named Hein. Then they took the ship from Hein, John James was elected captain, and Thomas Howard was elected quartermaster. And man, these guys really like their 
double first-name names, don't they? Thomas Howard is a name that you should remember, though. He's going to continue to play a role in our story for some time to come. After John James, Thomas Howard, and the crew of the Alexander cannibalized the Maryland merchant, the merchant was just sort of sitting there. You know, the pirates had taken her sails and tackle and everything she needed to sail, so she wasn't going anywhere. The Alexander herself was also remaining in place, waiting for another ship to come along that she could capture. Captain Aldridge was in Jamestown. He was explaining himself to Governor Nicholson, who was furious with him, and he was trying to raise the men that would allow him to take his ship back out there and defeat the pirates. But while he was busy in Jamestown, another ship did eventually happen along, while the Alexander lay waiting. It was a merchant ship called the Roanoke Merchant, under a Captain Thomas Jones. Captain Jones noted the King's Jack flying atop the mast of this galley. Clearly a well-built ship, he assumed her to be there in some official capacity, maybe even a member of the Royal Navy. So Roanoke Merchant thought nothing of sailing in close, probably intending to hail the captain and share news. As she drew near to the galley, Two of her guns fired. Again, they carried no shot, but it was a potent warning. Roanoke Merchant sat under her guns and was at her mercy. She would be unable to escape from this range. The Roanoke struck her sails, lowered her flag, and surrendered. Captain Jones was brought on board the Alexander, and the pirates there made quite the impression on him. We get our best description of Captain James from Captain Jones. That's where we learn about his smallpox scars, the tenor of his voice, everything in that initial description we read. He also tells us that most of the men wore gold chains around their necks. And that's a fairly impressive piece of jewelry for such low men. But he noted especially that the captain, Captain John James, carried a golden toothpick on his chain. Now, a golden toothpick is an ancient symbol of status and nobility, and when I say ancient, I mean the cradle of civilization. There were kings in Mesopotamia that outlawed anyone owning a golden toothpick who wasn't the king. You could have bronze or silver or whatever, but nobody but him was allowed to have gold. Queen Elizabeth had a collection of golden toothpicks that she showed off to dignitaries from other countries. This made a real impression on Captain Jones. In the end, he was fully compliant in the looting of his ship, in order to, you know, not die. In fact, it was his crew that did most of the work of transferring the cargo. Now, they didn't have anything fun on board, no chests full of gold or bales of indigo, no ambergris hall, it was mostly just supplies. Pork and beans, lard, corn, oil. I think the most interesting thing they captured was a, a single beaver pelt. Now, this transfer took some time, so while they waited, Captain James brought Captain Jones into his cabin. James was there to have a bit of fun with his captive. He sat him down and threatened him with all manner of unpleasantness. Mostly, though, he threatened to impress Captain Jones into his service, along with most of his crew, take their ship, or maybe burn their ship. 
Captain Jones asked the pirate very politely not to burn his ship, but when Captain James declined, Captain Jones grew a backbone. He said that, quote, instead of go with him, I would burn with the ship, end quote. And it really feels here like John James was just toying with the guy, trying to scare him and enjoying the scaring of him, because... When Captain Jones finally grew that backbone, he got bored. Instead of playing the menacing barbarian, he got kind of friendly. He introduced himself. His name was John James, and he even went so far as to talk about his home. He hailed from Wales, originally in Ceredigion. Once his ship was finally unloaded, Captain James told Captain Jones that he would be allowed to go free. But he was going to make the offer to his crew that anybody who wanted to come with them was free to do so. In the end, two men did. Their names were Will Steward and John Lucas. Captain Jones tells us that the two men from his crew signed the ship's articles, a pirate code. And it's always worth a mention when someone reputable testifies that the pirates did indeed have a written pirate code on board. At about eight o'clock that evening, the quartermaster, Thomas Howard, told Captain James that the crew was growing restless and were eager to leave the bay. And Captain Jones makes a special note of this. It was odd to him. The quartermaster, who was ostensibly second in command, was telling the captain that it was time to leave. And that's, you know, crazy. To a guy like Jones, he was almost giving him an order. Standing before this terrifying monster and telling him what to do. And the captain, instead of, you know, pulling out his cutlass and killing the man, he listened. You know, he said, sure thing, let's do it. Let's hold a vote about where we're going to go. And that blew Jones's mind. They held a vote. They gathered everyone on deck and all stood around and had a little town hall debate. Where should they go? New York, the West Indies, Africa, they wound up deciding upon Africa. But that, that's what was truly terrifying, not just to a man like Jones, but everyone in the civilized world. These pirates didn't respect what they saw as necessary hierarchies. The crew held sway. The captain led them, but he was not their ruler. And that was terrifying. Now, we're going to leave things there for now, but there is one last thing I want to mention. See, I don't have any information on this, and I'm unable to find any. But whenever I'm going through the sources and I find a name, I usually like to Google it, see if anything interesting pops up. Usually not, but occasionally something comes along. Remember those two guys that signed their name to the pirate code? When I searched their names, John Lucas came back with something. Apparently, there was a Welsh pirate called John Lucas in the early 18th century. And there's this place called Culver Hole near Swansea that has these crazy human-carved caves that probably date back to the Middle Ages. And according to legend, John Lucas, the Welsh pirate, used them for smuggling and hiding treasure. 
And it seems like this John Lucas may have just been a regional pirate, somebody who stayed in and around Wales, but the only information I can find on it comes from a show called Hidden Wales from the BBC that I can't figure out how to watch. The BBC Wales website says it's going to be uploaded after the episode airs and hasn't been updated since 2001. So unless I happen to actually be in Wales, I, I can't seem to figure out how to see it. So if any of you wonderful Welsh people in the wide, wide world out there have any information for me, maybe a, a good source that I might not be aware of, go ahead and please send me a, an email at piratehistorypodcast at gmail.com. And you know, on that note, I do get your emails and I do read them. I try to respond, but I don't always have anything worthwhile to say. But I love it whenever you guys send me, you know, interesting articles or, or links or factoids of information. It's kind of unfortunate that I usually get those after I've done the episode, so I can't add it in after the fact. But, you know, Amy, I, I did go to that Tumblr poll. You were right, it was up my alley, and I even voted on it. Jeff, I hear what you're saying, and I'm actually working on a project right now that might be more what your family is looking for, so keep an eye out for that. When it releases, I'll let you know. Brian, I do love tangents, and I would have loved to talk about Mark Antony's father, but when we were doing that bit on Rome, I had to add an episode 299-2, because I already went into so many other Roman tangents, so you know I couldn't really find a place to fit it in. Nathaniel and Easton, I wish you luck on your papers. Hopefully the sources I provided give you some good places to jump off. Just remember, don't cite me as a source because I am not anywhere near reputable enough for an academic paper. And while we're here, I'd like to mention that Heifei, our longtime patron, has an Instagram page called This Day in Pirate History, which is awesome, and you should all go check it out. He also just started up a Patreon, so check that out too. Next time, while John James and Thomas Howard head to Africa, we're going to stay in the Chesapeake. There are a bunch of other pirates that are going to show up and cause a whole lot of trouble, and some of these pirates are going to serve as a link between the last pirates of the round and the first pirates of this generation in Nassau. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. You all make it possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like Southern Gothic, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. You can find more of their work on Facebook, YouTube, Bandcamp, and anywhere else fine music is to be found. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Voice like
Tonight.